Our scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. Listen now to the word of the Lord. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent the servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of this uh, vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed, and so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but fear the people, for they perceived that he had told a parable against them. So they left him and went away. Word of the Lord. Thank you. The Lord be with you. Uh, thank you. Please uh, pray with me. God, we thank you uh, once more for this day, and we ask now, uh, in the hearing of your word, we would perceive your presence and the word that you might have for us. Now let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our God, our rock, our redeemer. Amen. So our reading this morning uh, is commonly known as the parable of the wicked tenants. Personally, I've never thought that this was one of Jesus's better parables. Feels a little weird saying that, but if you were to rank the parables of Jesus or create a tier list, as my kids like to do, of your favorite ones, I doubt that any of you would put this at the top of your lists. Because of the retributive violence in this parable, some have called it the least pastoral parable of the Bible. Thomas Jefferson, for one, did not like it at all and cut it out entirely from his version of the Bible. But regardless of how we might feel about this particular parable, the gospel writers in the early church considered it a very important and meaningful parable. They preserved it for us. And you might be surprised to learn, as I did this week, that depending on how you define a parable, this is only one of three to six parables that are found in all three of the first three Gospels. What's especially unusual about this parable is that unlike most of the other parables whose meaning has to be, is left open for interpretation or has to be explained by Jesus to his disciples, the main thrust of this parable was immediately clear. In verse 12, we are told that the temple leadership, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders perceived 
that Jesus had told the parable against them. They understood that they were the murderous tenants in the story. They understood that the judgment against them was coming as unfaithful stewards of the land and of God's people. It may not be obvious to us, but it was to those who were present, the temple leadership who heard Jesus speaking in this way, in this parable. Because here Jesus is basically riffing on a well-known passage in Isaiah 5, known as the Song of the Vineyard of the Lord. If we were to hear someone begin a story with, once upon a time, there were three little pigs, we know where that story is headed. Likewise, when Jesus began, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. We might not get the reference, but those specific details were alert those around Jesus what he was referencing. Listen to how Isaiah 5 begins and listen for all the same words that Jesus uses to clue us in. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones, and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and hewed out a wine vat in it. Isaiah goes on later to say, for the vineyard of the Lord, the vineyard, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plantings. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, and outcry. So based on Isaiah, we can see that the standard allegorical interpretation of this parable has been consistently understood for two millennia. And it's as follows. The man who plants the vineyard is God. The vineyard is Israel or the people of God. The violent and murderous tenants are the religious leaders. The servants who are sent and beaten, mocked, humiliated, and killed are the prophets of God, and the murdered heir is Jesus, the beloved Son of God. Now here we might be tempted to dismiss this parable because it seems to be directed specifically at a small group of people. But in retelling the song of the vineyard of the Lord in Isaiah, Jesus is doing something much more important, I think, than simply condemning those religious leaders. He's trying to tell us something about God and about who he is in answer to a question that he has been challenged with in the previous chapter. At the end of chapter 11, Jesus is challenged because he had entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey to the acclaim of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He has created havoc in the temple, overturning the tables of the moneylenders and preventing the normal flow of traffic disrupting the daily worship and sacrifice. So the temple security asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? So with that question in mind, Jesus gives this parable. And so listen again now to the parable with that question in mind. Jesus says, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Planting, fencing, digging, building, and leasing. These all indicate a deep commitment 
on the part of the owner. It is reminiscent of the story of creation, and the man has made every provision possible and has undertaken a risk that his tenants will be faithful and that the vineyard will be fruitful. Now, it's my understanding that vineyards require multiple years before you can expect to gather any grapes. So in the meantime, the owner would have to subsidize the lives of the tenants and trust that they will continue to be faithful and to do a good job for those four or five years so that by year five or so, there will be a harvest of grapes for the first time. Have you ever wondered why the man or God would choose to plant a vineyard instead of some other crop? Why not plant something less risky with a more immediate return? Why not wheat or barley or alfalfa sprouts, for, for that matter? Those crops can be sown and harvested in the same year. If you want an immediate return on your investment, if you need food right away, wheat and barley make more sense. Why plant a vineyard. Throughout scriptures, it's because the vineyard is a metaphor of hope. It is a metaphor of hope. A vineyard means that you believe in a future. If you're not going to be around for more than a couple of years, you don't plant a vineyard because you won't be around to reap the benefits. If you think you're only going to be in this town or this church for a couple of years, you are not going to invest in relationships. You are not going to buy a house and settle down. You aren't going to stick around after service or hang out or linger in the parking lot before you go home because you don't believe there is a future here. You know, before I came to this church, um, I worked as a youth pastor at three different churches. And the first question I got at two of those churches, when I walked in, the first thing the youth group kid said to me, asked me, in two of those churches was, how long are you staying? The third church, that was the second question I got. The first question was, are, you, are we allowed to date? Not with me, but you know, amongst themselves. <laughs> the youth group students had so many youth pastors and seminarians passing through and leaving after a year or two that they want to know if I was going to stick around long enough for them to invest in me. I can't blame them. They weren't going to invest in a vineyard if I was only going to be around for a couple of years because there'd be no hope of a future harvest with me. One of my uh, pastor friends told me that when he got his first job at a church, he told his congregation that the first thing that he was buying was a plot in the local cemetery. That was his way of telling the congregation I'm going to be here a long time. <laughs> I'm committed to you for the long haul. I think this is true of most things in life, isn't it? You have to invest for the long haul. You have to start putting money away in your 401k as soon as you start working. You have to invest in children from the get-go. We have to invest in the children's ministry here, even though it will take a lot of work, even though we will not see any meaningful benefit from them. No offense, youth group. 
It may not be evident until they become adults. But we invest in their lives because we believe there is a future. They are the emblems of hope for us. This is why Noah and his family, when they got off the boat, the first thing they did wasn't to grow a wheat field or a barley field. They built an altar to worship God, of course. But afterwards, the first thing they built was a vineyard. Remember? He built a vineyard. Why? Makes no sense. They just survived a catastrophic flood. Everything they've known has been wiped off the face of the earth. They've got major trauma. They've got food insecurity. You would think that they would want to plant something they could harvest right away to have some security of food. But instead, Noah plants a vineyard. Why? Because a vineyard means that he believes there is a future. A vineyard suggests that there will be stability, that there will be peace, the shalom of God. That will be necessary to wait the several years before a crop can be harvested. It meant that they could settle down, that this place would be a permanent dwelling place, a place of enduring blessing. A vineyard tells us that Noah trusted God for the long haul. And Jesus is telling us in this parable that God is committed to us for the long haul. I think this helps to explain why the man or God keeps on sending his servants again and again when they continue to be abused and humiliated and killed. This is the surprise of the parable. The owner should punish or destroy the tenants after the first mistreatment of his first servant. Any ordinary owner would have done that. But Jesus says that this owner is different. That he keeps sending his servants again and again, reminding us that God is one who is patient, not wishing any to perish, but that all might come to repentance. I mean, this is the story of the Bible. This is the story of the scriptures and of our history. That God continues to send his servants, his prophets, not once, not twice, not thrice, but again and again and again. God is persistent in his pursuit. Despite the sins of his people, despite the rejection of his word, God continues to appeal to his people through his prophets, through his servants, until finally the owner sends his only beloved son. And as with the servants, we might wonder, why does God do this? Why does the owner send his son knowing what's been happening to his servants? But Jesus says, this is what God is like. God is fully committed to reaching out to his people, not with deserved violence, but with an undeserving, final, loving appeal by sending his beloved son. And that word beloved is the key to this parable, I think. Isaiah 5, God is identified as the beloved owner of the vineyard. And in the Gospel of Mark, you might remember that at the beginning of chapter 1 in his baptism, a voice out of heaven said that this is my beloved son. And in chapter 9 on the Mount of Transfiguration, we heard the voice out of heaven once more declaring, this is my beloved son. Jesus is the beloved son. So Jesus has not only changed the ending of Isaiah's song of the vineyard, but he has now inserted himself into the song. He 
is the beloved son in this passage, the beloved son of God, who is the beloved owner of the village, of the vineyard. And just as the father is fully committed, the beloved son too is fully committed. And this really is the greatest shock of all. He comes as the rightful heir, the one who has the power and the authority to bring the army of the father to destroy the tenants. But instead, he allows himself to be killed. And we can see here this radical reinterpretation of the song of the vineyard. This is how Jesus is answering the question, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? And in the parable, Jesus says, my authority comes from my identity as the beloved son of God. And by adding and placing the murder of the beloved son as a finality to the story, Jesus is making the claim that as the beloved son of God, he himself is the culmination of God's history of salvation, that he is a fulfillment of God's redemptive plans. So it's in light of all of this, of all that God has done, in light of this salvation history, that Jesus asked the question that we have to consider, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Will God finally now give up? Will God finally lose his patience and destroy those who have stubbornly refused to acknowledge his rightful place? Will God at long last commit the kind of violence that he has so long resisted, withholding his anger against a sinful humanity, even to the point of allowing his only beloved son to die? Is this how God will act? And I have to tell you, honestly, I struggle with this. He will come and destroy those tenants. And maybe you do too. And I was encouraged that I'm not the only one who's been asking this question. That perhaps even the gospel writers themselves struggled with this question. I said that it appears in the three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Matthew's telling of this story, after Jesus poses this question, when, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Jesus himself does not answer that question. That's in keeping with Jesus' character. He rarely answers the questions that he poses. In Matthew's telling of the story, Jesus does not answer. It's rather the crowds, the chief priests, and the elders who answer the question. They said to him, they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Right? That's how we think. That's an alignment with how we understand justice and what should happen. They were evil and they should be punished. But Jesus never answers. He does not affirm their response in Matthew. It's as if Jesus is saying, you think after all I've just told you about what the owner has done, you think that's how he's going to respond? And instead he tells a story about the stone that has been rejected and has become the cornerstone. Similarly, in Luke's version of the story, Jesus says he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And then Luke says, when they heard, when those there heard this, they said, surely not. Surely not. What the variations in the Gospels remind me is that the destruction and judgment are not easily reconciled with the God that we have come to know, who has gone out of his way and has given his only son for us. 
And that when judgment comes, it's only after God has tried everything and is given every chance to lead us back toward repentance. As I live, declares the Lord God in Ezekiel 33, I have no pleasure, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? That's the longing of God's heart. And notice that the parable does not end with death and destruction and condemnation. Jesus adds this unexpected epilogue to the parable by asking, have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is here quoting from Psalm 118 and intimates that he is the rejected stone who will become the cornerstone. And here Jesus has a little word play here. In Hebrew, the word for stone is eben, and the word for son is ben. So the ben that is killed is the eben, the stone that is rejected and will become the foundation upon which God will build a new temple, a temple built without hands. This resurrection is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus says, God is not interested in destroying the vineyard. God wants to give the vineyard to those who will be faithful so that it will be fruitful. God has that right. The vineyard, whether it's the kingdom of God, the people of God, the church of God, or the entire earth, it does not belong to the tenants. It does not belong to us. It all belongs to God. Deuteronomy 10, 14, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Psalm 24, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Psalm 50, 10, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. So even though we have rebelled and sinned and have made a mess of the vineyard of the Lord, Jesus said God is invested in the long haul. He's invested in the long haul in the vineyard and will continue to find those who will plant and cultivate his vineyard so that all might enjoy the fruit of the vineyard. God wants grapes to keep on growing. God wants the wine to keep on flowing. As God has repeatedly demonstrated throughout history, God is fully committed, fully invested in the life of the vineyard. So as those among whom God is entrusted as stewards of the good news, hear the exhortation of the prophet of Hosea. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. For it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Pray with me. Lord, we are reminded that you are the Lord of the vineyard, that you are the Lord of the harvest. 
and that Jesus is not only the heir of the vineyard, but that Jesus himself said, I am the vine, and you are the branches. And that we are to abide in him so that we might bear much fruit. So God, even as you have committed yourself to us, to your people, for the long haul, help us in imitation be committed to you, to trust in the long story that you will make all things right and help us to be faithful stewards of the people and of the tasks, of the lands, of the ministries, of the good news to whom you have entrusted to us. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.